Peter Hain, Lord Hain, your 20 questions start now. You were Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. You were Secretary of State for Wales. You were Work and Pensions Secretary. You were also leader of the House of Commons. You were an MP for nearly quarter of a century. Now you're a Lord. How would you best describe or summarise the differences between the House of Commons and the House of Lords? Well, somebody once said that uh, going from being an MP to a peer is like proving life after death. Uh, you get kind of reincarnated in the second chamber. But the main thing is that the Lords is much gentler, it's much less adversarial, but it's also more serious. Legislation is scrutinised in much greater detail, issues and technicalities and details that pass by the Commons, often under programme bills, which means they are timetabled and therefore they go through quite quickly. Uh, there's a great deal more serious scrutiny in the Lords than there is in the Commons. But in the end, the Commons is supreme because it's the elected chamber. Personally, I think the Lords should be fully elected, but that's another issue. I think it needs reforming. And that's another issue as well. It's far too big. We've got over 800 peers and they keep arriving uh, from prime ministerial lists in the main. But uh, it, it's it's a much more serious body than I must say, even down the corridor in the Commons for a quarter of a century, I'd fully appreciate it. You've been a champion of parliamentary privilege. Certainly you've used it yourself. Are there any downsides to it? Yes, if you are irresponsible about it, if you don't act with integrity, and if you don't use it sparingly. By this I mean, Matthew, that whenever a parliamentarian in either chamber speaks, they're speaking under parliamentary privilege. And it goes back centuries to protect Parliament's sovereignty and the right of MPs to speak out against the powerful and the rich for without fear of intimidation in the courts or in any other way. I want to talk about Nelson Mandela. You knew him personally, of course. What was he like? He's the most amazing person on the world stage that I've ever met. In many respects, the most amazing person that I've met uh, you know, I, I saw him as first and foremost a people's person, that you find when people reach global iconic status, and there are not many who do like Nelson Mandela, in fact, I can't think of anybody, but even the next run down, you know, whether you're president or a prime minister or a pop star or a sports star uh, or a queen or a king or a prince or a princess, people tend to um, distance themselves from the average citizen, and that's understandable, the pressures, the constant scrutiny, the the media intrusion, which is ubiquitous. Uh, you know, there's virtually a paparazzi around every corner for many of these people. And there's obviously the modern forms of social media where you can be filmed and recorded very easily from people's smartphones. So they tend to withdraw and and kind of retreat. And then there are obviously also security issues. And what that does is, is is it distances people from the these celebrities from the average citizen and with nelson mandela who was probably the most iconic figure of our generation the, of of the last century uh that didn't happen to him he was he was i can give you lots of anecdotes about how he never forgot about the people who'd supported him and he was always interested, fascinated by people, especially children. Uh, for example, if I tell you a story about escorting him into Cardiff Castle when I was Welsh minister, you know, my early days in 
in as a minister in the Labour government. And my duty was to escort him from his hotel to receive the freedom of the city of Cardiff. He was also attending a European Council there. Uh, and Tony Blair's president of the European Union at that time had invited Mandela unusually to uh, to attend a, a European Council because he was a couple of years, no, four years into his presidency. Uh, and uh, my job was to escort him in. And it was an unusually hot day because Wales isn't normally very hot and there's a lot of rain and there's a lot of dampness and so forth. But um, this was in, it's a baking hot day uh, in June 1998. And uh, there was this line of VIPs, the Lord Mayor, the Secretary of State for Wales, the Lord Lieutenant, the High Sheriff, you know, a range of uh, county councillors and, and the rest. And my duty was to take him, and I knew many of the leading names, and to introduce him to them. And then he spotted this little group of primary school children. They could only have been six or seven, something like that, just uh, as we were walking by. And one of the things he said to me, as did others like Ahmed Kathrada, who were the Robben Islanders with him, is that one of the things they missed most was the joy of the sounds of children, including their own children. And so he spotted these little kids in Welsh national costume, uh, na national dress, all dressed up and sitting there wondering, I don't dare say what on earth was going on. And he started conducting them to singing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. And meanwhile, you know, the VIPs were sweltering and sweating, waiting, waiting for him. And that that just typified um, his, his, he was a people's person, uh, apart from an incredible leader. You spent your early life in South Africa as a South African. Can you begin to describe to us what that was like, living under apartheid when your parents were anti-apartheid? Well, I, I tell the story in my recent um, memoir, South African memoir, A Pretoria Boy, uh, South Africa's public enemy number one, because that's what I came to be called uh, after anti-apartheid sports process by the white South African media. But for me, it was a combination of the abnormal compared with my cousins and my friends at school with the normal. The abnormal was that my parents uh, were leading anti the leading anti-apartheid activists at the time in the early 1960s because uh, much of the resistance had been closed down, people like Mandela in jail, others tortured, killed and so on. Uh, so we had police, uh, security police, raiding our house early in the early hours of the morning. Quite frightening for a small boy, actually. Uh, when I was 11, I was woken up in the middle of the night to be told my parents had been arrested, uh, which obviously, you know, was 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 quite upsetting. And I then had to tell my younger brother and, and sisters uh, about that. Uh, and then we had to live for a couple of weeks on our own, looked after by our domestic worker and my gran, um, not my granddad. He didn't approve of my parents' activism and thought they'd got what was coming to them. Uh, but my gran moved in with, with our, our faithful domestic worker and friend, um, Eva Majeke. Uh, and so that was that was the abnormal side. And we had, we had special branch cars parked at the bottom of our our um our garden uh, path out just outside following my parents around our phone was tapped um our, many of our friends were detained and uh, some and arrested and some jailed so there was that life going on which was quite different to any of my school friends any of my cousins uh, and they in a sense 
None of their parents were involved. Only a infinitesimally tiny and brave number of whites stood up against the system of apartheid. And I'm proud that my parents were amongst them. And then there was the normal side of my my mum and dad, um, you know, officiating at bike races in our garden, uh, just being fantastic parents. My dad teaching me how to spin bowl and constructing a, uh, helping me build a cricket field in our in our in a rather bumpy part of our our garden, a, a cricket pitch rather, uh, and helping me you know learn how to play properly. So there was all of that side of them, uh, fantastic parents, but at the same time, they were targeted all the time. And eventually the targeting became so serious. Uh, my mother banned first. I can tell you a bit about that. But um, And my then my father a, a year later. Uh, and then they stopped my dad working and we had to leave the country in 1966, which none of us kids wanted to do. Uh, and certainly my parents didn't want to do. They were South African born. They loved the country. They didn't want to abandon their comrades, but we had to in order to survive because how else could we earn an income? So we came to Britain. You would continue the struggle in Britain. Talk us through briefly, Peter, the infamous 1970 tour. Well, I was a sports nut. Like most young white South Africans boys, you know, I cared about sport uh, almost more than anything else, not literally, you'll understand that as a, a sort of shorthand, but I really was passionate about uh, football, about cricket, about motor racing, and interested in rugby too. But rugby was seen in those days as the emblem of apartheid on the sports field. So I refused to play rugby at um, at school, my high school, much to the disapproval of my, uh, my head teacher, uh, about the only time I got reprimanded by my head teacher at school at Pretoria Boys High. But I was passionate about sport. And as uh, as a young teenager, uh, I got increasingly involved following my parents in the British anti-apartheid movement, which was the biggest of many anti-apartheid movements around the world. This is in the late 1960s. And decided that it was the period of the student sit-ins of nonviolent direct action, the student, the Paris student revolt in 1968, uh, people taking over empty houses to squat homeless families in non-violent direct action. And I I thought, well, let's try to apply that to the sports arena. And the particular trigger of it was when Basil D'Oliveira, a, a, a South African-born cricketer of mixed race, easily good enough to play for his country, but prevented from doing so because he wasn't white, had to come to England to further his career and ended up as one of the top test English test players in the mid-1960s. And then he was not selected for the tour that England was due to make at the end of 1968. He's unaccountably left out. Uh, we subsequently learned that there was a deal between the England cricket bosses and the, South, the white South African cricket bosses who said, we can't possibly have him as a as a as a, a non-white South African representing England playing in South Africa because they knew it would have just shown up the, the, the iniquity as well as the absurdity of apartheid. So he was excluded from the team and there was such a public uproar because he was you know a regular top player that he was then included. And then the South African Prime Minister, John Foster, who had banned both my parents, by the way, as, in his previous role as Minister of Justice, 
uh, he stepped in and said, this is the team of the anti-apartheid movement, which was ridiculous, and cancelled the tour. So here was direct political interference by the government and saying, you cannot, England cannot tour South Africa because you've got Oliveira in your side. It just showed up uh, how deeply embedded race politics were in cricket and, as for that matter, in other sports. And then a few months later, as if nothing had happened, the MCC, um, Marylebone Cricket Club, which was in charge of uh, cricket in those days, there are some, you know, other bodies now in charge, but it's still centred at Lord's Cricket Ground, announced that um, the, the white South Africans were being invited to tour in 1970, the following year. And I was just so angry. I, I issued a, a press statement and uh, got people together to say we were going to stop the tour. And one thing led to another, and I found myself chairing and leading the Stop the 70 Tour campaign, uh, which pioneered non-violent direct action invasions of the pitch at Twickenham to stop the Springboks playing invasions of uh, pitches around the country to stop uh, a private white South African sports uh, club level touring side in 1969, interrupting a Davis Cup tennis match where I ran onto the the court with uh, the match between England and South Africa in July 1969 in Bristol and got stuck in a police cell for my pains and then told to shove off and go home. And the same thing happened at Twickenham when I ran on the pitch and, and so on with thousands of others. And that led eventually after 25 matches of repeated demonstrations and, and stoppages, uh, it led to the stopping of the 1970 cricket tour again, which I describe in, in my Pretoria Boy book. Um, and nothing like that has ever happened before. A tour had never been stopped through political protest. And it was a huge victory for the anti-apartheid movement at a time when there were very few victories because the internal resistance had been closed down. Um, the Ravonia trialists um, and your dad made a wonderful uh, documentary film about Mandela and his comrades uh, in the Ravonia trial when they were sentenced to a life imprisonment um, on, on Robben Island. Uh, they were in, in jail. The resistance inside the country had been smashed. It was a tough time, and this victory was a, a very, very important in terms of building up the momentum, which was eventually to see the freedom struggle succeed. Did you get a criminal record for your troubles? I did, because I was prosecuted uh, a couple of years later for conspiracy. And it was clear that I was faced a prison sentence, but I managed, um, it's, a, it's a long story again, sorry to plug the book, but told in the Pretoria Boy, uh, that uh, I eventually ended up in, in the first part of the trial, which lasted a month. My prosecuting, um, my, my defence lawyers uh, took the... The, the case for the prosecution when the prosecution was bringing witnesses and so on. Then they they mounted the, the defense response to that. But then they, they got to the second half, which was, was my case, uh, the defense case. And they said to me privately, look, you don't have a defense in law. Um, the conspiracy law is so, you, it's so oppressive and so rigid that even if you'd done any of these things, and I was charged with doing a thousand things around the country, and not only in the country, in Ireland, in Dublin, uh, at a demonstration that I'd never been to before. And here I was in the Old Bailey, charged with these, uh, really about a thousand offences over the rugby tour, the cricket tours, the tennis match, and uh, 
and so on. And my prosecute, my defence QC reckoned that I faced a jail sentence. The judge was determined to make an example of me. Anyway, uh, I took my own defence after they more or less uh, indicated that they wouldn't have a defence. I wouldn't have a. They wouldn't have an answer if the judge said, "What is your client's defence in law?" Um, and so I took my own defence and I managed to appeal to the jury and I was acquitted of the most serious charges, the three counts which would have put me to jail, and was convicted of sitting on a tennis court for two minutes quite peacefully and fined 200 pounds and received a criminal conviction as a result. And in fact, when when I was um, uh, recommended for appointment to the House of Lords, it, it, you had to fill in a form, you know, are you... Do you pay your taxes in Britain? Are you uh, a, 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 are you on the electoral register in Britain? Things like that. And one of them was, do you have a criminal conviction? And I thought, I'm I'm going to have I'm going to put this down. I mean, I know it's 50 years ago, and for sitting on a tennis court, but I didn't want anybody saying I was not being straightforward about it. Anyway, it didn't seem to bother them, did it? Given your activism, was it an obvious step to go into British politics? You were elected as an MP for the first time in 1991 and a really important relationship with Wales and its politics began. Yes, that did happen. No, uh, the answer, Matthew, is in in the period of 1969-70 when I suddenly became a national figure and a notorious one, a hated one. In uh, amongst many rugby fans and cricket fans and people of a small C conservative disposition, I mean, literally hated me, didn't understand why we were stopping their sport and saw it as a threat to, you know, English civilization, as the prosecutor in my conspiracy case put it in virtually literal terms in that way. Um, so I, I, I was a radical protester and I, I never considered going, becoming an MP. And in fact, and then the thought of me becoming a, a lord in later life would have, I think, probably horrified the, the teenage Peter Hayne. But, um, uh, you know, this was a period of, of radical youth, and I was very much part of that. So, no, I didn't ex- I didn't ever have a conventional career that I kind of planned out in the way that some people do. Uh, politics, it's quite difficult to plan a political career, but some people do that and do it successfully. I never, I never thought I'd become an MP. I never intended to become an MP, and I didn't expect when I became an MP to become a minister. And when I became a minister, I didn't expect to become a cabinet minister. So these things kind of happened. But I was all, and politics was in my DNA, and so I was passionate about politics. And uh, I was first asked to stand for Parliament by my local Putney Labour Party in 1980, uh, 1980, 81, and, and much to my I was selected to do so, and that started a parliamentary path that ended up me being elected um, for MP for Neath in April 1991. And I've lived in Wales now ever since. Uh, I, I first moved in 1990 when I was selected as a parliamentary candidate, uh, and I've spent more of my life in Wales than I have anywhere else in uh, in the world, whether South Africa or, or England. I think in Putney you stood against David Meller, who won and would become a a cabinet minister himself. I'm curious about your relationship with Wales as it intersects with sport, without wishing to ask the Tebbit question, the famous, infamous Norman Tebbit question about which cricket team you support. Who do you support when 
England, South Africa and Wales are playing rugby? Well, I'm often asked this question. People say, do you support England or the Springboks? And it's a question of my adopted uh, nation compared with the nation of my, my childhood and my origins. And I always say Wales. <laughs> because um, Wales is is the part of the United Kingdom that I most identify with and I've become part of. And uh, as I say, I lived 32 years of my life there and been Secretary of State for Wales and an MP for a quarter of a century. And now I'm the Right Honourable Lord Hayne of Neath in West Glamorgan, to give you the full title. Um, so uh, I, I, uh, I very much identify with Wales. I, I, I When I first got there, um, when I first arrived in Neath and won the selection for parliamentary candidate against many people's uh, predictions, um, almost overwhelmingly, somebody um, from the from the local party, Labour Party, said to me, "Well, you may not be Welsh, Peter, but at least you're not bloody English." <laughs> and uh, that was Peter reflecting the the rugby rivalry. It was said in jest, as it always is, but you know, it's quite a. Uh, a, a strong rivalry uh, that that I have um, observed and become part of. You s served in the cabinets of Blair and Brown. When you now look back with the benefit of hindsight, with the benefits of the passing of time at the new Labour project, can you just in synopsis form give us a sense of what you feel new Labour, broadly speaking, got right and perhaps what it got wrong or could have done more of? Well, what New Labour got right, and I was critical of it at the time, but I think it was absolutely essential in retrospect, that Gordon Brown and Tony Blair wanted and became absolutely fixated on ensuring that Labour was trusted on the economy. And talking at a time you know, when the economy is in crisis and the government has been all over the place and the Conservatives have uh, risked losing, well, have lost their reputation for sound money and economic management, which is always their strong card against Labour. Tony Blair and Gordon Brown were very focused on trust in managing people's um, economic expectations and the fact that their standards of living would not only be not threatened by Labour, would, would actually rise. So, And we had, before the global banking crisis, which you can't blame Labour for any more than you can blame any other country or government in the world, because it was a global banking credit crunch, before that, in 2008, we had 10 years of consistent growth every year, high growth, nearly 2 two 2.5% to 3%, the highest um, and continuous record of a decade of growth that has ever been in Britain's economic history. So they definitely got that right. Iraq was a, a great historic mistake, uh, and I have to um, own up to being in the cabinet at the time and, and, and supporting Tony Blair, because I believe the intelligence that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, which he didn't, and the intelligence was wrong, and the whole um, invasion was on an entirely false premise. I don't think Blair was insincere about it. I never thought he lied about it, but um, that was a huge historic error, and it's something that he hasn't personally managed to remove from his reputation. Uh, and in a sense, all of the fantastic other things that he did like doubling spending on health, risking the National Health Service, on doubling spending on schools, whilst having an economic, a record of, of, of incredible economic success with low interest rates and low inflation, record numbers of jobs, and as well growth uh, and economic stability. 
we invested in public services in an unprecedented fashion. We got the railways working properly um, uh, and efficiently by investing them, all sorts of things like that. We did a fa and, and there was peace in Northern Ireland. We brought the Good Friday Agreement, one of the great achievements of Tony Blair's governments. So that was all, I think, I think it's been forgotten, and some some of the reason is that the Labour Party itself has tended to be to be overcritical of the record of of, of Labour. I think now, under Keir Starmer, people are recognising what an incredible achievement it was. Where I think we should have been more radical is is in recognising that, and I, I saw this before my very eyes uh, over the period I was serving as MP for Neath in deindustrialised communities. In this case, in Neath, the loss of coal mines that had been at the heart of the local culture and, and economy, together with large manufacturing industries and big traditional industries like BP oil and uh, and BP chemicals and so on. Um, the loss of those jobs, working class industrial jobs, left those communities without a sense of root of, they left them rootless and without a sense of self-pride that was very, very important to, to the culture of, for example, the Neath Valleys, and that was replicated right across the industrial communities of Wales and England and Scotland. And that that we didn't actually do enough about that. We brought more prosperity, yes, but we didn't bring sufficient investment in those communities of the kind that could recreate in a modern form the vibrant, uh, using new technology, the vibrant jobs of the future to replace the jobs lost from the past. And that created the kind of discontent that led to Brexit, in my view, which is a monumental act of, of national self-harm. And I think we're seeing it played out uh, right now. Uh, and so I think that New Labour didn't pay enough attention, didn't give enough care and attention to its traditional working class industrial base. Uh, that's my main criticism. But in other respects, we, we had a fantastic record that I was proud to be part of. As part of that answer, Peter, you mentioned Iraq. And I read recently that you had opened a line of communication with Tariq Aziz, an Iraqi minister, in a bid to try to prevent escalation to war. Is that right? Yeah, but that was before when I was Middle, uh, Middle East minister, uh, before I was in the cabinet. And this was a period of this would have been round about uh, the year 2000. And I'd got a message that um, he, he is the foreign minister, obviously he was <clears throat> very much part of Saddam Hussein's dictatorship, but he was a, he was in a sense the more acceptable or the least unacceptable face of it. He was quite a civilized man and well-educated, but, you know, part of the dictatorship. Uh, and yes, I'd got through somebody that I knew a message that they wanted to talk. I mean, I was very wary of it. But I did through the uh, the the uh, in in the run up subsequently to the Iraq War because obviously as Middle East minister I was known uh, out there. I did through the Qataris and the Amanis seek to try and establish a uh, a form of of communication that might have averted that war. But I wouldn't want to exaggerate it, and I was always quite skeptical about about whether it could ever have come to fruition because. I don't think Saddam Hussein ever believed the invasion would take place, and I don't think he was ever interested in negotiating. He could easily have let the weapons inspectors in unimpeded. He could easily have you know, brought the world's media in to show them that there were no weapons of mass destruction, but it actually suited him 
to pretend that they might be because it increased his sense of omnipotent power. How do you look back now at the Corbyn years? Well, let me start with the beginning. When I knew that Jeremy Corbyn was going to be elected leader was when several of my close friends, one a former miner who'd um, nearly lost his house in the big strike of 1984-85, a neath miner, a very close friend of mine, um, and I would say on the in Labour Party terms on the kind of centre-right of the party, reasonably radical economically, but probably quite small-c conservative socially, he said he was voting for Jeremy Corbyn. And then uh, I had a, another friend who I'd known from Putney days going back decades, who was a retired international management consultancy managing director who spent a fair amount of his life between New York and London. He told me he was voting for Jeremy Corbyn. This is like an international capitalist, if you like. And the third was a retired political editor in Wales <clears throat> who had interviewed me over the years and whose politics I, I never had the slightest inkling of in his professional career. But when he retired, he joined the Labour Party and he told me he was voting for Jeremy Corbyn. And I said to each of them, but why? And they said, well, we're just fed up. There's no clear projection of any values and, and passion uh, under Labour anymore. There'd been the Ed Miliband leadership and I'd supported Ed and I'm a friend of his, but it was not an effective leadership and the party didn't succeed under him. Uh, and there was a sense in a turning back on the new Labour triangulation of politics, if you like, seeking to kind of reconcile, to find the, the centre of, 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 of politics and where people were, but not necessarily where the values of Labour were. Uh, and so that's why I think Corbyn got elected. In a sense, he got elected partly because New Labour didn't deliver as much as we should have done for the reasons, partly the reasons I've explained, and created the conditions of just discontent uh, and a sense of of rootlessness. Um, and then, you know, I, he was he never expected to be a leader. He never was a leader, and it, but yet he was a phenomenon. And he was able to fill every town hall and every city hall anywhere in the country to overflowing. The problem was not that. I mean, he, he had a an army of followers and the Labour Party's membership soared to unheard of heights uh, in the modern era, at least. I mean, in the 1950s and so on, it had millions of members. But um, in in modern political terms, no political party is, has got a mass membership. The Tory party that voted in Liz Truss is a tiny membership. Uh, but Jeremy Corbyn created an immense movement, but he had no support in the in, in amongst the electors in, in, in an area like Neath, a working class community. He was despised uh, and, and seen as, you know, a lot of people would not vote Labour, even though they were Labour to their core uh, and would never have voted dreamt of voting anywhere else. They ended up voting for Boris Johnson, some of them. Uh, and we went down to the biggest defeat in our history as a party since 1935. And, and I always thought that was coming. I could feel it was coming. But um, you have to understand and that those, those three friends of mine who voted for Jeremy Corbyn, as did other relatives of mine, um, who are you know regular citizens in any in other respect, why they did so. Uh, and yet, by the way, when I asked each of them, these very serious figures, uh, why, why, uh, did they think he could win? Oh, no, they said, no, we don't think he can win. But we think we have to shake the party up. I said, so do you mean you're voting for somebody who you know can't win? 
and we know he didn't win. In fact, he was massively defeated. But you're nevertheless voting for him. Yeah, because we think, you know, the party needs shaking up. Massively defeated in 2019, but did much better than expected, much better than I had expected in 2017. We're speaking now just days after Liz Truss has sacked her Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, and the Tory party is in almost, perhaps, unprecedented chaos. Where does that leave Keir Starmer? Who knows where we'll be when this podcast actually goes out, but where does that leave Keir Starmer? What do you make of him as a leader? Well, I think he's struggled to establish the authority that you need to challenge and have the credibility to challenge for prime to be a prime minister, partly because he was elected during the COVID pandemic and it was impossible to get any kind of um, uh, st- in any standing or any or to reach the public during that period because really the the public was only fixated on what the government was doing, however well or badly to to get out of the pandemic. Uh, so that was part of the problem, and the Tories were still benefiting from a terrible defeat and the 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 feeling you know millions of voters who normally would have considered voting Labour voting for Boris Johnson out of fear of Jeremy a Jeremy Corbyn government, and you know that you don't change that overnight, and you certainly don't change that as a new Labour within months of getting elected and and then finding yourself as well suffering from the penalty of, of, of a COVID pandemic where normal politics doesn't happen and you can't go around meeting people and campaigning and holding your annual conference and so on. And I think increasingly he's seen not necessarily as the most charismatic leader uh, that uh, politics has ever produced, but as a very serious figure for serious times and somebody of great integrity and authority and uh, people know that he's extremely bright they know that he's uh, reliable as an ex-director of public prosecutions. He's not going to take decisions lightly. But he's also being quietly quite radical. Uh, and I'm increasingly enthused by that, that he's saying, for example, on the climate emergency, we are going to have a massive program of public investment, borrowing to invest, not borrowing to fund tax cuts, as Liz Trust tried to do. And it blew up in her face and took everybody with her, including homeowners facing record mortgages and so on, um, and pretty well wrecked the economy. But borrowing to invest, which governments have to do, especially when the economy is in trouble, as we saw after the Second World War, I mean, the national debt after the Second World War was massively higher than it is now. And yet, what did we do? We built millions of houses. We built the National Health Service, and that kick-started the economy, and we got growth, and we got more people in jobs and businesses thriving and so on. And what Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves have put forward is a huge program of, of, of greening our economy through investments in renewable energy and in low-carbon infrastructure and jobs and housing that is zero-carbon, eco-friendly, and so on so that your your electricity and your energy bills are very low. And I think that's that's very exciting, as are some of the other policies that, that we've got. But it's if we come to power in the next period, um, it's going to be a very tough situation because the economy has been, you know, uh, been crashed by the Tories. Would you like to see Labour and Keir Starmer in particular do more to advance the Labour cause, the reasons for people to vote positively for Labour rather than not for the Conservatives? Or do you think his best bet 
given the chaos in the Tory party, is just to carry on not plodding along, but not making mistakes. Well, obviously, you don't want to make mistakes. I mean, that's rule number one in politics, especially for um, an opposition leader, because you don't, Labour's never faced a a media, print media, certainly, that's um, backed it, except in a couple of cases of The Guardian and The uh, the Daily Mirror, most steadfastly. And, and from time to time, others, including The Independent and The Financial Times, have done so too. But the overwhelming... Well, the Sun, uh, the Sun backed Labour under Tony Blair. That's true. The Sun did. Yes, you're absolutely right to correct me on that. And who knows who the Sun might back next time? But um, uh, what? I, so you can't afford to make mistakes uh, because they'd be pounced on by a media that is interested more in that kind of thing than it is necessarily in the substance of policy. So number one, rule number one: don't make mistakes. Um, rule number two, however, is you can't win by default. Now, it's often said that that governments lose elections rather than oppositions win them. And that's a political truth that's probably valid. But the opposition's got to look credible and it's got to reach people and it's got to touch people and and resonate with people. And so I think this has opened the opportunity for Keir Starmer and for Labour to to accomplish that task. Uh, And we we still have to, to, to do that, although the poll ratings for both Keir Starmer as a prime minister in waiting and Labour as a uh, as a, a potential incoming government. I mean, the, I've never seen poll leads like this, even under under Tony Blair. Or was, there was an opinion poll that I saw recently, uh, may have been eclipsed by the time this goes out, that showed Labour on 550 MPs, the official opposition being the Lib Dems on 50 MPs and the Conservatives on 20. Well, I don't expect that to be the outcome of the next general election. But I think Keir Starmer is very well placed to become Prime Minister and Labour to do it. We look like increasingly like a, a, a seriously a serious alternative party of government in a way that we haven't done since certainly since 2010. You'll be aware of a lot of hostility towards the Tories, towards the Tory government, perhaps particularly on social media where it's rife. I wonder what your attitude towards fellow politicians who are conservative is. Do you make friends across the aisle? Do you make friends across the floor of the House of Lords? Did you make friends across the floor of the House of Commons? This is really one question. I'm not trying to cheat. I'm essentially just asking you whether, despite big political differences and despite politics sometimes being a matter of life and death, are you able, have you been able to form friendships with the opposition? When you when you say friendships, uh, Matthew, uh, I, I regard people I call my friends are uh, people that you know we go for a drink together, we go to each other's houses, we spend time together, uh, and sometimes go on holiday together. I don't have any conservative friends and haven't done uh, of that kind uh, amongst my close friendly circle. But I've been on very friendly terms and remain so with a whole number of conservatives, including in the House of Lords perhaps more particularly where, you know, you tend to be to work in a less adversarial way and find yourself in in working on common agendas. For example, the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, which I regard as a terrible bill breaking international law, 
there are a lot of conservatives who are horrified by it. And you, I've never, I've never sought to pick a fight with anybody. I've never sought to be rude with anybody, and I've always tried to get on with anybody. You know, you can't be Secretary of State of Northern Ireland, able as I did under Tony Blair to bring Ian Paisley Senior, the fiery Protestant leader, to form a very amicable government with Martin McGuinness, the ex-IRA commander. You know, you had to form friendships with both. Uh, leaders uh, and their immediate um, leadership uh, core without agreeing with them necessarily, uh, without necessarily liking anybody. So, but I, I, th I do have people, especially in the Lord, that I regard as, 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 as I mean, as regard as small f friends, if I could put it that way, not, you know, close ones. In recent days, we've seen a stepping up of protests around the environment. Given your history of activism, how much, if any, sympathy do you have with those who are putting their themselves out there, ri risking, in some cases, potentially prison sentences, in order to shout about what they see as a massive climate crisis, and, and the science would seem to, to back up their concerns? I've got a lot of sympathy with them. I was one of the few, if, the, if not the only, peer from the House of Lords who went to support and join an Extinction Rebellion uh, demonstration sitting outside Downing Street and occupying Whitehall and bringing it to, to a halt perfectly peacefully because I wanted to show my um, my solidarity with them. That doesn't mean to say I agree with every environmental activist's every protest, but generally speaking, you know, all all, rap, all protesters, all great causes, whereas the anti-apartheid movement, in my case of the Stop the Tour campaign, whether it's the suffragettes campaigning uh, for for women to have the vote, whether it's the charters complaining for for every everybody, every man to have the vote, working class men as well. There's always um, they were always vilified at the time and then sanctified afterwards. I mean, you can't cannot find anybody who will criticize the suffragettes now because they're but they were deeply unpopular at the time, hated at the time, vilified for their nonviolent direct action process. So I, I, I sense a, a, a bit of um, the same around the, the environmental protesters. And, and they're right. You know, the climate emergency is an emergency. And I'm not sure it's, it's reverse. It, it, the climate crisis is reversible. And we, we, we're moving with snail-like pace to do it, to tackle it. Um, I was in the cabinet when Lord Stern presented his report to us in, I think it was 2004. Uh, it was actually at a cabinet meeting when he came in with his prognosis. And he said, um, doing something about climate change is going to be hugely costly for governments like yours, but not doing it is going to be even more costly. And how right he's been. I mean, this is what getting on for 20 years ago. And we're seeing the consequences uh, almost every day playing out across the world, including our own country. You talked earlier about uh, Pretoria Boy, your, your memoir, brilliant memoir. You just launched. Very kind of you, Matthew. You're launching a new novel, The Elephant Conspiracy, which follows the rhino conspiracy. Do you feel you have a particular flair for novel writing or for non fiction writing? And, and could, could, could you tell us the different challenges that you face, whether you enjoy one more than the other, whether one more, comes more naturally? Well, I think it's for others to judge whether they think I've got a flair or not. Um, people have been very kind and reviewers have been very kind about the Rhino Conspiracy, which was the, the thriller I published about, was published a couple of years ago, my Muswell Press, about um, poaching in South Africa and the corruption, political corruption and criminality 
which is linked to global crime syndicates behind it. Um, and I hope that people enjoy its sequel, the, the, the Elephant Conspiracy, as much. The idea, and it's actually, I think, harder to write um, fiction than it is to write nonfiction. I found it tougher to write a thriller than I did, for example, to write The Pretoria Boy, which is, was relatively straightforward to write. Because you are trying to portray characters, you're trying to keep the reader turning. Well, you're trying to keep the reader turning the page of any book that I've written. Otherwise, what's the point of, of writing it? And and I try to write in a readable way. And I think a lot of people don't do that. So there's a particular challenge. But I mean, I, I find it really enjoyable. And you can you can bring into it because it's fiction, um, real life situations. Uh, and in some case, in some cases, a sort of faction as well in 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 terms of the the two thrillers uh, because they they take place in particular periods in the South African story of terrible corruption that I mentioned earlier and its aftermath because it's still there and and the threat of extinction of wildlife. So so I, I so there's a, a a a a real life context to it, but the characters are are fictional and the story is fictional, but. Some people have read it, say, read read both books, so, well, it's pretty close to a lot of reality. You'll modestly say, no doubt, that it's for others to judge the success of your career, to judge your output, but I'm just intrigued to get a sense of what you feel are the skills or the abilities or the talents, or perhaps it's resilience, that has led you to be able to, to lead a life as prominently as you have in the public eye. Well, I think You've got to attribute that to my parents. I was really proud of them and, in a sense, took up their mantle, um, not, you know, in any pre-planned way. When I got into my late teens in the anti-apartheid struggle and in politics generally, and I'm very, very close to to my my dad, who died in 2016, and my mother in 2012, and they've left a big hole in my life. But um, I was inspired by them. They were... They described themselves as very ordinary people, um, uh, who did, ex- but I think they did extraordinary things, and I, I suppose that's driven me on. And also, the desire to make a difference, not for myself, but to actually make things better. I mean, there's a saying of Nelson Mandela's that I quote a lot, um, including in the Pretoria Boy, and I think it appears in um, in the in the Rhino Conspiracy as well about. Uh, the point of of living is not just to be, but to make a difference, to improve people's lives uh, and that is that has driven me all all the way through and I think that's also in the way that I've tried to do things to concentrate in achieving something in a relatively narrow area for example sport in the battle against apartheid where I thought we could win and we did uh, rather than trying to take on everything though I supported you know arms trade bans and economic sanctions and so on those are much more difficult to to deliver and that that principle of trying to do something rather than trying to do everything, which you can never do, has kind of driven my life. And I suppose you know the values that uh, that were instilled in me in in my DNA uh, by my parents through in the anti-apartheid struggle and seeing the horror of apartheid, uh, you know, made me being very committed to equality in every form and also to human rights and to social justice. 
you can't do everything, of course, but you have done a lot. You've been a campaigner. You, you've been an activist. You've been a politician. Been in the Commons. You've been in the Lords. You've been an author. You've written memoir, non-fiction. You've written fiction. Can you tell us which area you personally feel you have made the biggest impact in your life? Or put it another way, what are you proudest of? Well, I'm very proud that we stopped the 1970 cricket tour. I think that was a decisive turning point, and others have said so, including Nelson Mandela, when I met him for the first time when he came out of prison uh, when I was an MP in 1991. My parents knew him from their Pretoria days. Uh, He said that that victory was decisive at that time. And many other people have observed, if I hadn't actually come up with the idea of direct action and and found myself leading that, it, it might not have happened. I'm also proud of uh, winning the, um, helping lead the campaign to win the Welsh referendum to establish its own legislature, the Welsh Parliament, the Senate, because I think that's been very important to the development of Wales. And perhaps proudest of all, the um, the settlement we achieved in 2007 in Northern Ireland, which, as I mentioned earlier, brought the bitter old blood enemies together to share power together. And it was stable more or less for 10 years. Subsequently hit a lot of um, roadblocks and differences. But, I mean, the peace process in Northern Ireland was Tony Blair's greatest achievement. And one of the things I was proudest of doing in my whole political life was managing to to play a role in um, under Tony Blair in negotiating that 2007 settlement, something people said would never happen, that the former IRA members would join the former you know, extreme um, unionists under Ian Paisley and former an effective government together. Uh, I mean, there are other things that I could point to, but those three, I think, stand out for me. What do you like as a person? When we met on stage for the first time earlier this year, I found you warm and solicitous and friendly and, and quietly charismatic. How would you describe yourself? What do you, how, how do people who meet you in everyday life find you? Well, I hope a fairly regular kind of character. Um, you know, I don't, I don't have any... Look, we all have a bit of ego in your sort of job in the media and, and my job in politics. I think you've probably got to have a bit of it to, to do it. Well, some people have said that, and I kind of thought about that when they did. But I don't. I never thought of myself as anything special. And I think that's really important if you suddenly find... I never thought, as I explained earlier, I'd find myself prominent in politics in this way or in a public figure. But you're no different from anybody else, fundamentally. You know, we've all got the same angsts and the same, you know, uh, life sort of issues about moving house or whatever it might be, or tragedies in our families or struggles or arguments uh, within and outside families. You know, this is this is life. And I'm, I'm no different in that sense from anybody else. And I suppose um, the ability to, to make friends uh, with people I'd say is comes fairly natural to me because I don't think of myself as anything special. What is the perfect Peter Hain evening? <laughs> um, watching my favourite football club of, uh, what is it, 57 years now, uh, Chelsea, play uh, watching on television or going to a match. Uh, if I'm on television, having a nice glass of red wine watching and... Uh, it drives my wife, Elizabeth, round the bend. She calls herself a football widow. Um, but uh, I, I enjoy that as an evening. That would be all spending time with my grandchildren. I love seeing my grandchildren. I don't spend enough time with them. 
and it's one of the things I, I miss most. Peter Hayne, thank you for answering my 20 questions. It's been great fun. Thank you for having me. It's uh, been great talking to you, Matthew.